Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Grief fundamentally changes who we are and how we see the world. It's painful and heartbreaking, but also transformative and magical. This podcast is about grief and loss, but more importantly, it's about life and living fearlessly. I'm Kelsey Chittick, and welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Grieve. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Today is a really special podcast for me because it's something I haven't talked about. I've talked about grief and dying in a lot of different ways, but one of the areas that I am not as well-versed and I haven't really discussed it with many people, but I've got a couple people coming up in the next couple of episodes that are looking at some unique parts of dying, whether it be what our guest today, Joanne Kelly, is going to speak about, which is aid, medical aid in dying and how that looks, kind of the debate between what's different from that, from suicide and or medical, just all the things that have to do with people that are making a choice to die. And I really am going to be learning in this podcast because this is something that is so different than my experience. So our guest today is Joanne Kelly. She has an amazing book that is coming out on August 9th, and it is called Walking in Home. And what is the tagline, Joanne? It's helping my husband die with dignity. Okay. So thank you for joining us. We had a small conversation about a week or so ago just to kind of understand what this book and this experience was about. But can you start by just telling me about your husband and how we even got to this experience? What was what was his life looking like and what got you guys in this place where walking him home was necessary? Thank you for having me today, Kelsey. I appreciate it. Ellen and I got married sort of late in life. It was the third marriage for each of us. And we were in our late 40s at that point in time. And he was just a delightful man from my perspective, very funny and kind and considerate. And I was just head over heels. But after we'd been married for a few years, he started having really strange symptoms, like acting out in the middle of the night, punching and hitting, you know, his he'd yell or he'd scream. And so his his weird dreams were very, very violent and he was acting them out without ever waking up. So that was our first clue that something was going on with Alan that was very strange. And it took us a long time from there to get a diagnosis, but Alan was ultimately diagnosed with multiple system atrophy, which is a horrible illness that's in the, it's an atypical Parkinsonian illness. So it's in the family of 
Parkinson's illnesses, but it moves much, much more quickly than normal Parkinson's and you have more severe symptoms. So Alan had always said, um, it was part of his little patter, that we treat our pets better than we treat our elders because we help our pets die when they when they're when they're suffering becomes too much to bear. And so that was his basic philosophy in life is that when we get to the end of life, we should have some control over how much suffering we needed to endure. So when Colorado put up medical aid and dying as an option in 2016, uh, we both voted for it. We were both in Um, definitely supporters of um, people having that opportunity and so it passed so it passed in 2016 and it was implemented in 2017 and Alan got his diagnosis in 2017 so that worked out well so when did you guys from the time that he got diagnosed until you you obviously were having this discussion before he was even sick about having dignity and being having choice and I think you and I spoke about this, but my family, especially after losing my husband and it was sudden, but we didn't have any, he wasn't in pain, but we talked about how my family's very, very open and continues to always talk about how important that is to them. And I I hear that more and more, but when, when in his diagnosis, at what point were you two able to sit down and say, this is going to go in a different direction than maybe we ever thought would. And this is what I need from you. Okay, so he was diagnosed in August of seven of twenty seventeen, and then in January of twenty nineteen. So a year and a half later, he asked me to make an appointment with his healthcare facilities palliative care team because he wanted to make sure that he understood the requirements and that he had his ducks all lined up. And so we went to that first discussion with the palliative care team and the team was actually kind of reassuring to me because believe it or not, I really didn't want my husband to die. (laughs) But they were they were pretty sure that Alan was not going to qualify for medical aid of di- in dying when the time came because let me go back and just talk about the requirements for medical aid in dying. You have to have two doctors that agree that you have a terminal diagnosis and that you have six months or less to live. And you need to have two doctors agree that you have decisional capacity, which means you have the ability to make good decisions on your own behalf. And you also must be able to ingest the the medication yourself. So somebody else can mix it up for you. It's a powder that you mix with juice or water. But you have to be able to take that cup and hold it to your mouth or hold that straw to your mouth or pour it into your feeding tube. That's another way you can ingest it yourselves. But you may not have help with that piece of it. You have to be able to self-administer the medication. And so the team, when we had our first discussion with um, the palliative care team, they led me to believe that it was unlikely that Alan would still have decisional capacity by the time he was six months away from dying. And it was also because of what his illness was doing to his body. It was going to be kind of iffy whether he could actually 
administer the medication himself as well because he was very shaky and uh, you know but by this time he was in a wheelchair and he was hard to understand when he talked I mean if you if you really listened you could understand but he talked like he was drunk because the part of his brain that was affected by this illness was the cerebellum and that's the part that gets pickled when you have too much to drink so when he talked you had to really listen to understand him but anyway that's what we learned when we went for this first conversation with the palliative care team and so i was kind of going whew, to myself that maybe Alan won't be approved. But then we're going to fast forward to August of 2019, and his doctor recommended that he go on hospice. And at that point in time, I realized that he was six months, I mean, the doctors would say he was six months away from dying because that's one of the requirements for hospice. So he was sort of on the clock as of the 1st of August. But we were also at that point in time in the middle of getting him transferred to a nursing home because I was no longer capable of taking care of him at home. It was just, I couldn't transfer him, for example, from his bed to his wheelchair and then from the wheelchair to to the toilet, that kind of thing. It just had gotten impossible for him to participate in that enough that I could pull it off. He weighed, he outweighed me by quite a bit. So just let me ask you a question. So during this process, and I think, you know, all of us that have been through loss, at a certain point, it becomes, there's a lot of business to loss. There's a lot of business to dying and logistics. Emotionally, were you both on board from the beginning that this was the right choice because his quality of life would have been so bad that this was the only, this was the only path that seemed humane in some ways for both of you? So Alan was totally on board with that from the get-go. It took me longer because, as I said earlier, I really didn't want him to die. And it took me a long time to just adjust my outlook to knowing that he was going to die anyway. And nothing I did was going to slow it down or stop that. It was really just a matter of giving him a little bit of control over the timing and a little bit of control over the circumstances of his death. He wanted to be at home, in his own bed, surrounded by people who loved him. And he wanted me to help him make that happen. And unfortunately, so so he he applied in early October. He got approved in late October and it, he was just so relieved when he when his application for medical aid and dying was approved and I was I sat out in my car and screamed it was just not what I was ready for and so it took me I was so angry through the holidays because people were sending me Christmas cards that said joy and happy and oh I was just I You know, I didn't want all that celebration. But anyway, I talked Alan into waiting until after the first of the year to die so that I would not be mourning and his daughters wouldn't be mourning and his granddaughters wouldn't be mourning during Christmas for the rest of their lives. So he agreed to wait and then he was in a hurry. It's interesting because, and we talk about this a lot, but we consider death bad because we miss the person, but nobody considers birth to be bad. They're both painful. They're both scary. They both change everything. 
<laughs> one brings somebody in that changes everything. One takes someone out that changes everything. And I keep coming back to this idea that if we, if we were able to, it sounds like Alan was excited and happy. Like he got into college when he got the application <laughs> because it's where he needed to go. And when you yes. know where you need to go, you're excited. Yeah. And this is such a new topic. And I mean, of course, we're debating abortion right now in this country and all these ideas on who, where, what what agency we have as human beings. And I think so what you're saying with the application process, it's very strict. And so that means if someone has a terminal illness, but they're not going to die and they're going to be living with it, they don't really have a choice, correct? That's correct. Based on the law. Yes. So it's very particular and the process becomes something that you have to hit everything exactly at the right time or you can miss the window or you can linger for a very long time. Exactly. What are your thoughts on that now that you've lived through the process? And then I I do want to hear about the day that it um, took place, but what are your thoughts overall in terms of this process? And and if we need more leniency, if we need more education, I don't think a lot of people, I'm from the South, nobody would talk about this there. It just wouldn't come up. I live in California now, everybody talks about it. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on if, are we moving in the right direction or was it harder than it should have been? The healthcare organization that Alan was part of actually made it easy for us because they spelled out the steps that we had to go through and what order we needed to do them. And each state, all, all of the laws in the United States, there are 10 states that have approved medical aid and dying in the District of Columbia, and each of them have slightly different rules. And the basic requirements for all of them that I went over earlier remain the same, but some of them have waiting periods between this step and that step, and some of them you have to see a physician, and some of them allow you to see a nurse practitioner. So there, there, are, there are minor differences between all the laws, but most of them were written with Oregon as the, the model, and so they follow that, that model, and so they are similar. But I think that we're moving in the right direction, but I want to be really clear that I'm not saying that medical aid and dying is appropriate for everybody because that's simply not the case. There are many people who don't want it, and I am absolutely fine with them not choosing to use it, but there are many people who know in advance that they're going to have a pretty hideous death, and so they're the ones that want to take advantage of this law. And people have been known to move to different states so that they can take advantage of the law. I wonder too, if before we had this massive healthcare system and this massive nursing home system that we are keeping people alive so much longer than they used to through modern medicine. And if we, it's an interesting discussion for another podcast, but are we really assisting or giving aid to dying or is it just we're pulling them out of the system and legally being protected to do that? So if you don't, if you couldn't take care of him at home back a hundred years ago, you wouldn't, he wouldn't have gotten the care he needed and he would have died. And so it's an interesting, cause we have it like it's this big choice, but it's almost not so much a choice on our, our parts. It's just a choice on whether we engage in the system or not. And are, can we live with ourselves? Can they live with it? Can other people in our family live with it? That we are going to go the steps of keeping them alive for the sake of being alive. Right. 
That's a very good point. Katie Butler called it being on the medical conveyor belt at the end of life. And that's certainly many people want to avoid that. And, you know, Alan was in and out of the hospital from January of 2016 through, I mean, I'm sorry, 2019 and June of 2019. He had like six trips to the ER and he was admitted to the hospital multiple times. He had sepsis. He had blood clots in his lungs and it was, and he just said no more. I don't want to do this. It takes too much out of me. If it's my time to die, I am ready, was was his basic attitude. My grandmother dropped me off at the airport in 2015. She was 92, and she knew she wasn't well, but she hated the hospital. She hated being, she got terrible anxiety around it. And she said, the place you go to die is a hospital or a nursing home. And I don't want that. So I left and she stopped eating. And she stopped eating. It took 21 days and she stopped drinking, I think. I don't know when exactly. It might have been very, fairly soon when she stopped eating. But she just made the choice to, to end without having to go to the doctor and find out anything. And I always think how brave she was because oh, we got yes. her in the system. But she went on her own and there was some, I wasn't there. My, my mother and my aunt were there. And there were some really hard days, but they were able to keep her comfortable and they were right there with her the whole time. So can you share what his last week and days were and and how that went? and, And do you believe it was the most beautiful day, the hardest day or all of the things in between? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. <laughs> yes, all of the above. So I I think I mentioned that he wanted to die in his own bed in his own home. So I, we were working with hospice at that point in time and, and I asked them to arrange an ambulance to bring him home because we were beyond the point. He used to be able to ride in his wheelchair on a specially equipped bus to go places, but he was beyond that by quite a bit. So they arranged a, an ambulance to bring him home. And so he had this lovely breakfast with friends at the nursing home. And I did didn't join them because I was in his nursing home room cleaning up and packing things and getting it ready to go because nursing nursing homes are quite expensive and they charge by the day and I didn't want to pay for an extra day yeah and so once I would so he had breakfast with a friend and his daughter and then we we brought him home and there's just every little piece of this is 
has four more stories attached to it, but I'm trying to be conscious of the time here and not tell you all the stories, but they're in my book. If anybody would is interested. For sure. Yeah. But Alan was just so delighted to be home. It, you know, it felt good to him and it certainly felt good to me to have him home. And we had, we had his, his daughters and two of his granddaughters, the two of the two older granddaughters were here. And we had a couple of really close friends, um, two of whom their job was not to support Alan, but to support the rest of us. So to keep us fed and make sure that we kept drinking water or tea or something, because in Colorado, it's very dry. And to take our coats and run to the drugstore, whatever was needed, that, that was two of the friends, that's what their job was. And the other person who was with us was the minister, our minister from our church, who he and Alan had been good buddies for a long time. So, and we all, we all gathered around him in his room. And so when you, when you take advantage of medical aid and dying, the first thing you do, you have, to, you have to wait so many hours after your last meal, and then you have to take an antiemetic. So it's to keep you from throwing up once, once you're putting the, the life-ending medication in your stomach. And they also, they also give you an anti-anxiety medication. So he had that, and then an hour later, he was ready to, to drink the poison. And my, our friend Beverly mixed it up. She was a retired nurse. And I knew from having participated in my friend Barbara's uh, medical aid dying death a year earlier that I wanted to be at Alan's bedside holding his hand. I didn't want to be in the kitchen fretting over lumps and that kind of thing in the, in the mixture. So Beverly mixed up the medication and we had some lovely, sort of lovely Willie Nelson playing in the background because that was Alan's favorite. And he took a sip of, of the medication and he spit out the straw and said, yuck, that tastes disgusting. But I reminded him that he had two minutes to drink it because it gets thick. If you if you don't drink it within two minutes, it's too thick to drink. So I just said, sweetie, if you want to die, you have to drink it now. And if you don't want to die, that's fine. You don't have to drink it. But if you do want to die, you need to do it now. And so he just, he drank it all by himself. And he was, he stayed conscious for a few minutes. I, I would say about 10 minutes altogether. And I whispered, I love you to him one last time. And he whispered that he loved me. And those were his last words. And then it took him several hours to die. The directions that we had gotten from his healthcare provider said it can take anywhere from eight minutes to two days for the person to die. But most people die within two hours. Is there a doctor with you all, or are you just with your friends and family? Well, normally there is a hospice nurse who they're not supposed to be in the room with you when the medication is consumed. But our Why hospice, that? Why is that? Uh, it's about liability and hospice is not wanting to take any risks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But our hospice nurse got called to another person's death 
that day. And because we had a nurse, Beverly, with us, and Beverly stayed in contact with our hospice nurse via text messaging, that they, the hospice nurse felt felt comfortable leaving us on our own. But the whole time we had access to her expertise and of course the hospice doctor, she would refer any questions that she couldn't answer to the hospice doctor. So I I was not concerned about that. I felt like we were well covered. Okay. So you so it took a couple of hours and during that time was he uncomfortable? Was he in pain? Or was it like he was sleeping? It was like he was sleeping. He was unconscious. And, you know, he was he was still fairly young as aging goes. He was 71 years old and he still had a really strong heart. And, you know, my vision of when when people are at the end of their lives, they're all emaciated. Well, that's that's for cancer death. It's not for a medical aid and dying death. Alan Alan's philosophy in life was life is short. Have two desserts. Right. I mean, yeah. my husband looked very, very healthy the day yeah. he died. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting how we assume that what we see on the outside dictates what's going on in the inside, and, and it, it doesn't. It's really interesting how our bodies are made and how they present. So after, so at what point, so are you just, te- you're checking his heart rate, you're checking for breathing, and then at some point, does somebody just take the heart rate and they say, he's gone? Yep, that's and exactly what happened. So how did you feel in that moment? Were you, because you prepared for it for so long, what was the feeling on that day? So I was very, I just needed to compartmentalize because there was a part of me that was just so heartbroken, but I couldn't go there. Alan wanted me to be strong for him. And I felt like I needed to be strong for the granddaughters and the daughters. And and so I put on my strong face and waited till everybody left before I fell apart. But then I fell apart and I spent a couple of days sort of as a basket case, as I'm sure you can imagine. So I'd love to talk to you about your grief for just a little bit, because I wonder if how it how it is when you know they're going to go and they choose to go. So you you get to check off the list that he's okay with it. But I assume for you as his wife and the person that loved him, even though all that's true, you still miss him. Absolutely. It was interesting because he died right at the beginning of the COVID epidemic. And so I, I'm an introvert. And as far as I was concerned, COVID was a blessing because I spent that first year by myself. And that's what I needed. I needed space to process and to grieve. And so that's what I did. It's interesting. And I, I had the opposite experience because I had just lost my husband not too long before. And I felt alone with the kids <laughs> and like the whole world is gone and now I'm alone. And the, everybody's shut down. Everyone's locked in their happy families, probably playing Monopoly and playing charades as a family. So it's interesting how different experiences based on what you need for grief. Um, right. Sometimes you hit the right stride and sometimes it's out of whack. Yeah. So, so you, so you got through that. And then what was your motivation to write the memoir? So I started writing my memoir before when Alan was first sick and we weren't even sure what he had yet. So I had spent my uh, career writing marketing materials for high tech companies. So I had some writing 
background. I'd just never written a memoir before. Uh, but I started taking notes and I joined a group of women who were who had a memoir group and we read things to each other. Well, we submitted work to each other every week and critiqued it. And I learned a lot that way. But then once once Alan was gone and for the, for the first couple of months, I couldn't write. But then I spent the rest of the year trying my best to chronicle everything that had happened. Because when, when he was sick, I went looking for a book about a couple going down this path of medical aid and dying, and I couldn't find one. And it was very frustrating to me. I wanted there to be a book so that I would know what kind of emotional minefields and what, you know, what, what does, what does a gathering, a goodbye gathering for someone that's choosing medical aid and dying even look like? And yeah. And so I was really disappointed that I didn't find the book I wanted. And so I felt it was important to write the book that I wanted to read. So that's what I did. That's amazing. And I think that's, I think a lot of people, when you are able to write the story down, A, you get to remember all of it and you don't have to, you don't have to make sure that your great grandchildren will know, or that people will know your love story. Oh, it's such a relief to know that people know that you love them and how it all went down. You don't have to carry the story just in your head because you have it in a book. I think it's very cathartic. Can you answer two more questions? And the first one is the one, if, if, those of us who agree with this and feel like this is this is something that we would want to know. And I, I mean, obviously, I've told you my, my family talks about it quite often, and they're always showing me the card I'm supposed to call and don't send me anywhere and don't let the ambulance take me with it. And I told you that I'm like, Mom, could we stop talking about you dying? But she's obsessed with not getting in the system. And I'm like, could we take a break from all the dying? But I think what happens is as you get older, you just you go, I want to live well here, but I don't want to linger. Forever. Right, exactly. I, I have no desire. I would rather go. And I, you know, my, my parents are in their seventies now. And so it's a discussion we have. What is your advice if that's something that you want to understand or where do they go just to learn more about it? There's a really, there are a couple of really good nonprofit organizations and I have links to them on my website, which is joannetubbskelly.com. But Compassion and Choices is one of them, and the Conversation Project is another one of them that have really good tools that help you have the discussion with your loved ones about what you want your death to look like. And the best advice I have for people is to start talking now when you're young, when you're healthy. Talk about it, just like your family has has started doing, so that everybody is clear what it is that you want when you get to the end of your life, that nobody's going to be scratching their head thinking, well, would mom want this or would she want that? So have the discussion, have it early, and be really clear about what your wishes are. Okay. What was the thing you most loved about Alan when he was alive and what did you learn from his death? He was just such a funny guy. I really loved his sense of humor. And even during long, long days and weeks of caregiving, he made me laugh and that relieved the tension and made, made it easier. So I really appreciated his sense of humor and his kindness and his love. He was just a fabulous guy. And what did I learn from his death? I think the most important thing is that death doesn't have to be scary and awful and horrendous. Death can be peaceful and calm and tender. 
I mean, that I that brings me tons of joy and hope. I think my whole life I was so afraid of death. And I think most of us are, mostly because we don't talk about it and we don't see it. And for you to be able to witness that and then write a book telling people, hey, we walked this path and it was, of course it was hard because we loved him. And of course it was sad. But like you said at the beginning, if we're all going to die, let's try and do it as beautifully and as consciously as we can. Because I do think when it when that's the energy surrounding it, it's just, a, it's just a much better transition and it gives you hope for your own death that like, wait, this doesn't have to be something I dread forever. Right. A- Alan seems fine right now. He's he out is of, fine. He's out of the body that's not serving him. Yeah. He's with you all, however he shows up for you guys and he's allowing you to go on and live whatever part, this, this part of your life, not spending it in hospitals or nursing homes or appointments. So it's, it's really beautiful. I would love to talk more because I think this is a topic that we're going to hear more and more about, which is interesting because as technology gets more advanced, our desire to not be involved in technology becomes bigger. Yes, I think you're right. So thank you. So can you just tell us again the name of your book, when it's launching, and then your website so people can check that out? So the name of my book is Walking Him Home helping my husband die with dignity. And my website is joannetubbskelly.com. And I'm going to spell it for you because there are a whole bunch of different ways to spell all the pieces of it. It's J-O-A-N-N-E-T-U-B-B-S-K-E-L-L-Y, joannetubbskelly.com. Okay. And they can just look up and you have resources on your site and everything. I do. Yes. Thank you for having a conversation that a lot of people I think are afraid to have or afraid to discuss, but it's really, really important. And I wish you happiness. You seem like an amazingly strong, composed, exceptional person. I know you've been through grief in other ways, but sending you a lot of love and I look forward to reading your book. Kelsey, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep going. It gets better. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.